Chapter One: The Philosophy of Commodity Profits. The South Dakota prairie, where I grew up, was formed as ice age glaciers retreated two million years ago. In these glaciers' wake, a mantle of mineral-rich deposits was left behind, including clay soil and rocks of all shapes and sizes, and I mean lots of rocks, from big brown or pink or gray granite boulders. To smooth, fist-sized sedimentary stones, to irregular chunks of multicolored quartzite, the rocks tell an interesting story about where and how the glaciers moved and melted. But to a prairie pioneer like my great-grandfather Albert Cub, they were more a nuisance than a neat geological guide. Imagine cutting into the thick-rooted prairie with a moldboard plow in 1902, only to have each step interrupted by bulky chunks of rock tumbling up out of the soil. The plow's blade would strike stone and get bent or dulled, or be stopped altogether if it hit a large enough boulder. It was a significantly bigger challenge than his forebears faced farming in the fine sandy loam of Bohemia. So, from the freshly tilled soil, South Dakota pioneers would pick out all the rocks by hand and cart them away from the fields. Some of this task would have just been tedious, lifting little twenty-five-pound rocks one after another. But I still can't figure out how they unearthed some of the bigger boulders back then without heavy equipment. Eventually, the stones would be dumped unceremoniously into big piles, which were strategically located in the low-lying sloughs where they couldn't be seen from the road. The rockier a field was, the more challenging it would be to raise a crop, and the less it would be worth. Therefore, the bigger the rock pile, the less a farmer would want his neighbors to see it. Rock picking is a never-ending battle. Because each time a field gets tilled, even today, new rocks are uncovered and brought to the surface. Modern tillage, planting, and harvesting equipment is generally able to work past all but the biggest rocks. But a hay baler, which combs the ground, picking up all the little things it can find—leaves of grass and hay, grasshoppers, rocks—is rather more sensitive to these ice age souvenirs. I don't have to stretch my imagination too far to envision the drudgery of picking all those rocks one by one out of a field. My sister and I used to be sent out each year to the fifty-acre alfalfa field to clear away interminable quantities of rocks. There weren't as many rocks then as there would have been back in 1902, but it was still unpleasant. Trust me, all of these details are relevant in some way to my experience as a 21st-century farmer. The soil type affects what kind of crops can be grown and how productive those crops will be. The pioneers' efforts inspire and guide management decisions about the land's fertility. That will all be a part of this book, but the most important thing I want to mention about those rocks is how they illustrate a trading method that is critical to the grain markets: arbitrage. Omaha, Nebraska, where I live now, is perched on the silty clay hills just west of the Missouri River. There are no rocks scattered around. So when a homeowner in some fresh new West Omaha subdivision wants to build a retaining wall or line a driveway with decorative stone, they go to a gardening center and plunk down sixty dollars per ton for some rocks. If they want particularly attractive rocks, maybe they end up paying a little more. Well. If someone had told my eight-year-old self that all those stupid rocks I picked up out of the dry dirt and heaved onto the trailer had been worth nearly a dollar a piece, I don't know if that would have made the task more or less frustrating. Probably more frustrating because I certainly wouldn't have been able to sell those rocks for sixty dollars per ton in South Dakota. That would be like selling sand to a Bedouin or salt water to a sailor. The rocks are only worth something where they are scarce. A person could, however, acquire those rocks for free in South Dakota, put the money and effort into transporting them nearly 500 miles, 
and turn around and sell those same free rocks to someone in Omaha for $60 per ton. Now, that's a trade. That's arbitrage. Knowledge as money. Grain trading hasn't always been as exciting as it is today, but it has always been challenging. And for as long as humans have been growing crops, it has always been vital to our life on Earth. The earliest agricultural activity can be traced back to 9,000 BC on the banks of the Euphrates or 8,000 BC in the Andes Mountains. Farming and grain trading weren't the first professions mankind ever pursued, but they were probably in the top five, and they are as critical now as they ever were. Demand for feed grains in particular has been expected to double between 2010 and 2040 as the world's population grows not only in size, but in the sophistication of its diet, away from staple grains or starches, and toward more protein and meats, which are produced by animals who are fed grain. To ensure these needs are fairly met with sufficient production, and that the grain gets efficiently transported where it needs to go, and that it eventually gets sold to the consumers who need it most, is all going to require a lot of sophisticated knowledge and hard work from a lot of people. In short, it's going to require grain traders. While I've always romanticized the agriculture industry, once I grew out of childhood and moved off the farm, it became apparent to me that not everyone else felt the same awe and admiration for grain market participants. When I left business school for the real world, not all my classmates in California were too impressed by my choice to work in the grain markets and move to, of all places, Nebraska. But commodities trading, a fast-changing, tangible, and math-driven pursuit, was a siren call to me. Agriculture was already becoming a sexier topic back then, and I predict it will continue to be a strong, exciting field to work in as recognition grows for the critical importance of keeping our expanding world fed, peaceful, and prosperous. If you already have some exposure to the grain markets, for instance, if you are a farmer or a grain consumer, it's already evident to you that successful grain trading is vital to your business. If you are just now exploring the possibilities of the grain markets, it will become clear that knowing about all the market's functions will help you make money with your trades. But there's a fundamental difference between the way you're probably used to making money and the way money is made in commodity markets. In most minds, the response to what earns profit is probably the creation of some economic value. Painting a house, for instance, is a service, an activity that creates value for someone, and that person will pay for that value, and the painter will make a profit. Similarly, manufacturing creates a product with a value that's greater than the sum of its raw materials, and manufacturers earn profit from their customers. However, if I sold those $0 rocks from South Dakota for $60 per ton somewhere else, I wouldn't have created any economic value, although I would have transferred the ownership of those rocks to the buyers who most highly valued them. In other words, I would have just traded some rocks. My profit was earned simply by recognizing where two values were different than buying low and selling high. Grain trading is a very special and exciting variety of trading, but at its heart, it's not much different than trading rocks or baseball cards or used cars. Farmers do create, grow products with fresh economic value, but they must also wisely trade their crops. The success of their trading or of any other grain traders' decisions, will hinge on how much they know about the market and how well they use that knowledge to identify buy-low, sell-high opportunities. Investment occurs when an investor has a certain amount of capital, which she would like to turn into a larger amount of capital at some point in the future. 
She will therefore put that money into an economic asset today, with no intention of consuming that asset, but rather with the intention of receiving periodic income from that asset, or of later divesting of that asset at a profit. An investor has a lot of alternatives when selecting an asset, and will sometimes gravitate toward an asset with the highest expected return. However. Between two assets with the same expected return, the investor is likely to choose the asset that has a lower expected risk of loss. Similarly, between two assets with the same expected risk of loss, the investor will choose the one that has a higher expected return. This is the mean variance rule, and it's why "quote unquote" safe assets, like certificates of deposit at your local bank. Don't pay very exciting profits. It's also why the assets which promise a lot of profit typically display very volatile performance. So, of all the things in which you can invest your money, what could you do? Consider the simplest examples. If you're an eight-year-old with five dollars in your pocket that you'd like to turn into fifty dollars, you can take your capital down to the grocery store and buy lemons and sugar. Put together with some plant expense, a folding table, and some marketing, a sign saying "lemonade, fifty cents." You'll have a business. One hundred cups of lemonade later, you'll have your forty-five dollars in profits, a nine hundred percent return. If you're a twenty-five-year-old with five thousand dollars in a four hundred one k retirement plan, your first instinct will be to follow this same pattern of value creation. You'll probably invest the money in shares of companies that do roughly the same thing as your lemonade stand. They purchase inputs, raw materials, labor, and produce something with those inputs to create more value than the sum of the parts. Even companies that don't produce any product and instead produce a service, like marketing, consulting, legal advice, are theoretically creating more value with their processes than the sum of the parts that make them, like an office with a computer network and people. By purchasing those stocks, you're effectively giving the companies a portion of the first five dollars for the lemonade stand, and hoping in return to receive a portion of the final forty-five dollar profit. Making money in the commodity markets doesn't work that way. The model would be more like another eight-year-old offering to buy the first kid's whole inventory of prepared lemonade for thirty dollars, then turning around and repackaging it and offering it on a more advantageous sidewalk for one dollar per cup. Let's say that kid's profits would be sixty dollars. That's one hundred dollars minus the initial thirty-dollar investment and ten dollars of transportation costs to get the prepared lemonade to the new market. The second kid never actually created any new value. He just identified an underpriced product and figured out how to sell it for more money. He conducted an arbitrage, perhaps between a shady sidewalk where people weren't very thirsty and a sunny sidewalk where passersby were happy to shell out a dollar for a cup of warm lemonade from a cute kid. A lot of money can be made in the grain markets with similar arbitrage trades, perhaps by identifying a time when grain seems underpriced and predicting a later time when the price will be higher, perhaps by identifying a type of grain that seems overpriced when a different type of cheaper grain can be used as a substitute. Perhaps by identifying a specific buyer who is more willing to pay for grain at a high price than the buyers somewhere else, there are many, many dimensions available to arbitrage grain. The methods available to you for grain trading will depend on who you are. Pretty much any person with some available cash or a way to get some can make trades in the commodity futures and options market. And mechanically, it's very similar to trading stocks. So most people will find it a pretty straightforward process. Whether or not it is wise for them to engage in the process is another matter. Remember the disclaimer at the start of this book. If you have a unique access point to the grain markets. 
let's say you own a grain elevator or work for a company that does, or you own some farmland or maybe just some farming equipment. You will not only have opportunities to trade grain for profit, you can also directly engage in value creation. Whatever your case, the better educated you are about the tradecraft of everyone else in the industry, the more you will be able to identify trading opportunities. Certainly you can use technical trading techniques or any other broad market strategies or schemes to analyze grain price levels and hope for profit, but the real fortunes of the grain markets, the multi-billion dollar international grain trading houses, the multi-generational family farms, the lasting hedge funds with stable returns and low risk to reward ratios are all paying attention to the more complicated details about how grain is grown and moved to market and how it's demanded by end users. They're identifying arbitrage opportunities of all types, between geographies, between quality levels, or even between the different trading mechanisms through which you can buy and sell grain. Real proficiency at this is rare. Expertise in the grain industry like the grain itself, is usually stored in vertical silos of specialization. Separated by thick concrete walls, any one type of expertise is usually kept from commingling with other types in other silos. Futures brokers don't always know much about crop production. Ethanol plant managers don't always have time to keep track of how geopolitical events affect grain prices. An options trader in Chicago may be able to take advantage of minuscule changes in the vega on a March corn call, but not know a thing about how that corn came into being or how it will be used. On the other side of the coin, a farmer may be knowledgeable about the latest genetic seed technology and how best to design the irrigation system on his farm, but may not know what the vega on a March corn call is or that it even exists, or how best to manipulate it and achieve better, more stable revenue from his corn. At the risk of sounding melodramatic, some of this information is the kind of stuff the big, successful grain companies don't want you to know. Dan Morgan pegged it correctly in his 1979 book, Merchants of Grain. There is a, quote, traditional and well-protected secrecy of grain companies, end quote, which allows them not only to defend their competitive advantages from each other, but also to some extent to keep farmers and end users in the dark about how much money is being left on the table with each trade. Certainly, it benefits private grain companies to keep the broader investment community away from competing in their industry. Farmers, quite on the other side of the secrecy spectrum, profess loudly every day that they would love investors to know and respond more quickly to the market factors that affect production. This book aims to break down those silos, even if it's not very diplomatic or wise to do so. I think every grain industry participant could improve his profits by knowing just a little bit more about his customers' businesses or his customers' customers' businesses. I won't offer an in-depth discussion of the underlying parameters of options pricing or the intricacies of irrigation system design. Rather, I will simply demystify the entire scope of the grain trading process so that anyone who chooses to participate in the industry will have a basic idea of how grain is traded at every stage. Volatility The film studio of Iowa Public Television is mostly silent and dark each Friday afternoon, with the accumulated shadows of decades of fundraising drives and political roundtables huddling in the furthest corners of its cavernous space. But one pool of light falls from sophisticated lamps onto a set piece, a wooden table with two chairs. A few people sit around tapping on their smartphones, waiting. There are two professional cameramen, an intern, and a commodities market analyst frantically memorizing the week's closing prices for soybeans, cotton, and hogs. A program producer ambles in 
and as he opens the door, all heads turn because everybody, including the producer, is wondering, where is Mark? At the appointed hour, Mark Pearson arrives, and if the darkness itself doesn't lift, the silence certainly does. Well, hello! His presence is as thriving and flourishing as his person, which is a figure dear and familiar to a million public television viewers in 27 states. Farmers, ranchers, bankers, traders, equipment dealers, ethanol plant managers, and everyone else who happens to flip through the reruns on Saturday morning and find market to market. On this particular Friday, the stock market closed up by a couple of percentage points, and Mark is in fine, cheerful form, telling tales of his travels that week, speaking engagements stretching across the Corn Belt from North Platte, Nebraska to Monmouth, Illinois. All eyes are on him as he does the read-through of the night's script. When there's a pause for some editing, he turns to Scott, the cameraman, and says, Hey, Scotty, so my neighbor Earl was going into the kitchen the other day, and he asks his wife, Irma, if she wanted anything. Irma says, well, Earl, you gotta write this down now, you're getting so forgetful anymore. Bring me a bowl of strawberries with some whipped cream, and don't forget the cream. Write that down or you'll forget. So Earl shuffles off to the kitchen and putters around for a while, and then he comes back out with two plates of waffles and eggs. Here you go, dear, he says to Irma, and she says, Earl! I told you not to forget the syrup. Scotty laughs. Everybody laughs. Mark could tell a story about paint drying on a John Deere tractor and have every person in the room smiling and nodding and laughing. But the instant the camera light blinks on, Mark the quipster disappears and Mark the eminent pundit springs to life. He drills the analyst, how big will India's cotton crop be? Should corn farmers be buying puts right now? Is the Russian drought fully priced into the wheat market yet? Will South Korean demand drive up cattle prices? All those farmers, ranchers, and bankers turn on their television sets every Friday night to hear not only the feature stories about the latest USDA decisions or ethanol legislation or urban food deserts, but also to get a sense about what might happen to the prices of wheat, corn, soybeans, cotton, live cattle, feeder cattle, hogs, and other commodities in the coming days, weeks, and months. In the agriculture industry, an industry where your annual income can shift by 7% on any given market day, it's hardly surprising that the markets loom over participants like demigods. Fickle, vacillating, sometimes unjust, but always, always interesting. The choice to trade commodities rather than to use your capital for investing in stocks or bonds or any other asset is more than just a philosophical one. Trading grains will be experientially different for you because of one ubiquitous hallmark of the grain markets, volatility. If a person could have just owned grain over the past 40 years, and here let's assume an equally weighted index of corn, wheat, and soybeans based on Chicago futures prices, the value of that asset would have increased 356% during that time. That wouldn't have come close to beating the stock market. The S&P 500 grew 1,209% during that same period. But that's the least of the reasons why it wouldn't have been a particularly appealing investment. Hedge funds use metrics like a worst drawdown or a sharp ratio, that's reward divided by risk, to compare assets' performances and to measure how safe an investor's money would be. In that theoretical grain asset, the worst drawdown was a whopping 55% from the April 1996 high to the August 1998 low, with other similarly astounding drawdowns occurring with disturbing regularity throughout history. 
the annualized return over the past 40 years would have been 3.85%, and the Sharpe ratio would have been a disastrous negative 0.0265, using the Fed funds rate to compare grain returns against a theoretical risk-free investment. That's really bad from an investment perspective. One definitely wants one's money to be in an asset with a sharp ratio higher than 1.0, meaning the asset offers relatively more reward than risk, and the higher the better. What these statistics tell us is that grains have historically not been a particularly rewarding nor a particularly safe place to park investment money. But the unattractive volatility and wild drawdowns aren't necessarily the results of flaws in the grain markets, and it isn't completely reasonable to expect grain, as an investment class, to behave like a well-managed equity fund. Volatility and drawdowns are just what happens when you have a desperately demanded, that is, inelastic, product produced once or twice a year around the planet, subject to that planet's capricious weather one year, then suddenly overproduced the next year. In the stock market or in real estate markets, analysts can speak of bubbles. For a market to be in a bubble, it must be trading at a price that is higher than the real underlying value of the asset. As long as investors can figure out the real underlying value of an asset, bubbles typically don't happen. So it would be pretty hard to have a bubble form in lemonade, for instance. If you went to one store and the lemonade seemed too expensive, you'd just go find it at another store for a cheaper price. Blue-chip stocks of large, stable, well-known companies are also unlikely to form bubbles. Most investors are fully aware of how much capital, how much debt, and how much earnings are represented in those stock prices. Companies with less familiar business models, like the internet startups of the 1990s, certainly can attract excited buyers willing to pay stock prices above the real value of the company, because nobody could really define the real value of the company. Real estate has a similar problem. Until you actually try to sell a specific property on the open market, how can you guess what its value is? How do you account for that unknown value on your balance sheet? Grain, however, doesn't have that problem. There is always a known, underlying, real value of the grain being traded, because there is constantly someone out there needing it and willing to pay a market price for it, whether that buyer is a livestock feeder a flour mill, or an ethanol plant. It may be complicated to distill all the millions of individual grain trades happening around the world into one benchmark asset price, but it's not impossible. That doesn't necessarily keep grain prices from violently spiking than violently falling. If put on a chart and set in front of a stock trader, a grain market's natural price patterns would look an awful lot like bubbles forming and bursting in a repeated historical fashion. The wheat price in England went from just above $2.25 per bushel in 1807 to a record of $3.85 per bushel in 1812. That's a 71% rise. By 1815, it had collapsed back down to $2 per bushel. Similarly, U.S. wheat traded in Chicago experienced a brief peak at $3.50 per bushel in 1919, easily $2 per bushel higher than its average prices just a few years before and for decades after. The years leading up to that time were known as the Golden Age of Farming, and agriculture producers spent many subsequent decades seeking parity with those income levels. In more recent times, Chicago wheat prices experienced volatile peaks about once every decade since the 70s. Chicago corn prices spiked in 1974, 1988, 1996, 2008, and 2012. Chicago soybean prices saw brief highs in 1973 and other similar years as corn. What has been causing these crazy short-term rallies throughout history? Simply, 
The Fundamental Needs of Human Survival. The 1807 peak coincided with the Napoleonic Wars, and all other 19th century price spikes occurred when wars limited the movement of grain out of shipping ports to demand centers. The big 1919 peak occurred because America had become the one big source of grain while the Allied powers were tied up in the First World War. When massive starvation struck Russia during and after their 1917 revolution, the U.S. government's commitment to foreign aid drove up domestic grain prices. The fiery highs of the 1970s were again caused by a Russian spark. In a world facing global grain shortages during the 1972 to 73 crop year, the Soviet Union suddenly switched from not trading with the capitalist world to buying. 30 million metric tons of grain, mostly from the U.S. That was well over half of all the commercially exported grain in the world that year. The 1988 peak and the 1996 peak were caused by shortages of U.S. production. The global scramble to source grain amid a shortage is frantic while it lasts, but all those price spikes had the same cure: new production. Within a year or two, there was always better weather in the world's grain-growing regions, and massive amounts of production were motivated by the high prices themselves. A fresh glut of supply in the next growing season almost always cures a grain market's frantic bullishness. These are annually produced crops, after all, and farmers can choose to grow relatively less grain when prices are low, and relatively more grain when prices are high. Because of that well-established economic pattern, the 1807, the 1919, the 1973, the 1988, and the 1996 price spikes never stuck around for very long. But the 2008 price spike was something new. It occurred while U.S. production prospects were actually normal, and alongside spikes in many other commodities, meaning that it was a demand-driven rally rather than a supply-driven rally. Being signifiers of consumers' new willingness to pay higher prices, demand-driven rallies tend to be more lasting, and that may be the case for grains. Although 2008 grain prices plummeted back to 2006 levels before the end of the year, they have since moved back to mid 2008 levels and remained there ever since, which is a very different pattern than what we usually expect from supply shortages. No matter how you expect grain prices to move in the future, the beauty of commodities trading is that all this volatility isn't necessarily a bad thing. When stock prices rise, pretty much everybody is happy. Retirees, everybody with a 401k, pension fund managers, stockbrokers, and the operators of the companies themselves. When stock prices fall, there is a very small population of traders who were fearless enough to short sell stocks, and those are the only people who don't feel their hearts sinking on those bad days. In commodity markets, there are no bad days. There is as much pleasure felt when prices fall and raw materials become cheaper for a buyer as there is when prices rise and income grows for producers. Think about crude oil and gasoline. Middle Eastern princes benefit when prices rise, but as far as your own pocket is concerned, drastic drops in fuel prices are a delight. Furthermore, investors in the grain market can as easily make a profit when prices fall as when they rise. If they're very clever, they can do both: ride a price spike with a long position, then turn around and make the same money twice when the chart eventually collapses. In that sense, the grain market's volatility is one of their most treasured features. But it emphasizes the importance of understanding the underlying factors that cause such movement. The almost myth of non-correlation. Harry Markowitz, 
Aside from being a brilliant, warm, and engaging lecturer, I took his portfolio theory class in business school, is also the 1990 joint winner of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. He earned that distinction for applying matrix mathematics to the stock market, specifically for developing the theory of optimal mean variance portfolios in 1952. To grossly oversimplify, that means he was able to mathematically prove that if an investor carefully selects a full portfolio of many assets with known returns and known risks, then the net trade-off of the risk and return of that particular portfolio can be measurably better than any one of the portfolio's parts. A whole basket of eggs can be damaged, yes, but that basket of eggs is still better, more resilient against breakage, than one giant egg. This was a fundamental breakthrough in finance, and Markowitz is justly considered the father of modern portfolio theory. Ever since Markowitz worked with Paul Samuelson, Robert Merton, and Michael Goodkin in 1968 to develop the first known hedge fund for computerized arbitrage trading, the investment world has put a lot of effort into not just selecting good investments, but in selecting groups of assets that complement each other as an entire portfolio and offer investors the optimum mix of risk and reward they're seeking. It's pretty standard if you walk into any random investment advisor's office that the advisor might tell you to put your capital into a mix of aggressive small cap stocks, maybe a stock index, and some safe bonds. The exact distribution of your money into relatively safer or relatively riskier assets will depend on your age, your investment goals, and your own personal risk appetite. Portfolio theory is the whole justification for that distribution. The investment advisor may believe one specific company, let's say a consumer goods company, is going to be the best investment opportunity for the next 20 years. But if you just dump 100% of your capital into that single company's stock, you face the risk of losing 100% of that capital if that single company goes bankrupt. As well as being a philosophically sound strategy, portfolio diversification is also a mathematically superior strategy. Here's where the grain markets fit in. There are degrees of individuality for every stock and every bond available for selection in an investor's portfolio. But really, when the stock market plummets, most of the individual stock selections tend to plummet at the same time. And when the bond markets underperform, they tend to underperform as a group. The stock market and the bond market have significantly different performance patterns, but the greater number of independent asset classes you can get your hands on, the better able you will be to optimize your portfolio's risk-to-return ratio. Thus, the appetite for real estate, or exotic exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and of course, commodities. The idea is that commodities, as an asset class, have little to no correlation to the stock market, and non-correlation is the holy grail of portfolio management. If you have half your money in one asset, let's say a stock index, and half your money in another asset, let's say corn, and whenever stock prices fall, corn prices don't necessarily behave the same way, you would feel that the risk of a net loss in your portfolio would be reduced. One asset class may profit, while the other posts losses. Perfect positive correlation, that's positive 1.0, occurs when two series of numbers both rise and fall in exact scale and synchronicity. Perfect negative correlation, that's negative 1.0, occurs when one series of numbers falls whenever the other rises. Even if two assets are directly related as substitutes, for instance, the price of Tropicana lemonade and the price of Minute Maid lemonade, 
There is still typically some slippage and delay between the two price series moving together. There are some assets whose prices directly affect each other negatively. For instance, the price of the U.S. dollar and the global price of crude oil, which is denominated in dollars. But even these assets never display perfect negative correlation. Overall, it's desirable to find some investment assets that might do well while the rest of your portfolio is struggling. Therefore, limiting your risk of aggregate loss at any one point in time. So, if commodities in general or grains in particular really do have non-correlation or negative correlation to the stock market, it's no wonder they've attracted so much investor attention in recent years. As it happens, however, the correlation between the monthly returns of the S and P 500 index, a benchmark for stock prices, and the monthly returns of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. A benchmark for commodity prices from 1995 to 2012 was actually positive, positive 0.27. When calculating the correlation between assets, it's critical not to use the asset values themselves, but rather to use the periodic change in the assets' values—that is, the returns—to keep all comparisons apples to apples and avoid spurious correlation. If we just look at grain. Using that theoretical evenly weighted index of corn, wheat, and soybean prices in Chicago, and go even farther back from 1972 to 2012, the correlation between stock returns and grain returns is still positive, positive 0.10. Those correlations are relatively close to zero in a portfolio selection sense. Making commodities in general and grains in particular seem like desirable additions to a portfolio's mean variance matrix. Unfortunately, a wrench has been thrown into the otherwise smooth operation of a well-diversified portfolio. From 2007 to 2012, the correlation between commodities returns, as indicated by the GSCI, and stock returns. As indicated by the S and P 500, was as strong as positive 0.62. The correlation between grains returns and stock returns was also quite strong, positive 0.42. This was a real pickle for investors. At roughly the same time that the stocks portion of their portfolios was bleeding value from October 2007 to March 2009. Commodities were also taking a nosedive from July 2008 to February 2009. So much for uncorrelated assets stabilizing a portfolio. In fact, so much for the myth of uncorrelated assets at all. In today's world of globalized finance, when investors start to lose money in one asset class, like stocks. Those losses can trigger massive rounds of selling in completely unrelated markets, like commodities, just to cover the original losses, regardless of the underlying economic justification for that selling. Exacerbating this trend in 2008 was the fact that every market's bearishness was a result of a global recession, which meant that real consumption of physical goods, that is, commodities. Truly was diminished at the same time that the prospects for growth in company shares diminished. As the economy has recovered, it seems that most asset classes have recovered more or less simultaneously. Also, the investors who got into commodities to begin with were doing so specifically to seek out returns, and once their priorities switched from seeking return to minimizing risk, there was no longer as great an appetite for commodity investments. That's a pattern that is going to haunt global markets for a very long time, and possibly forever, as long as all the same investors are participating in all the same markets. All those markets are going to experience all the same bullishness or bearishness of sentiment at all the same times. On the most extreme days, you can look at a quote screen and tell in a glance whether it's a quote risk on or a quote risk off trading session. 
Markets that tend to rise on risk-seeking days are stocks, especially mid-cap and small-cap stocks, and consumer commodities like crude oil and the grains. Markets that tend to see increased investment on risk-fearing days are the U.S. dollar, bonds, and gold. Previous relationships, like a negative correlation between crude oil and stocks, have been destroyed by this new pattern. So some would argue that the late 2000s also destroyed the very reputation of portfolio theory and of my favorite professor. That argument, however, would fail to consider the most important detail of mean variance portfolio optimization. To get accurate results, you must use assets with known probabilities of risk and return. Unfortunately, nobody really knows the probability of future risk and return in upcoming months and years. Typically, people just use historical probabilities as a proxy for what might happen in the future. Even worse, people usually assume potential returns will occur according to a normal statistical distribution, which underemphasizes the potential for extreme results. Both approaches, especially in tandem, are a recipe for mathematical disaster. Which is indeed to say, there is no such thing as, quote, accurate results from portfolio optimization. There are poor guesses or very good guesses, but they are all guesses, and Markowitz never claimed anything other than that. No one can predict what will happen in the future. It may be that a nicely diversified portfolio, with positions in a lot of interesting assets, will give you some confidence that you might not lose all your capital all at the same time, but it can never fully guarantee you won't experience loss even major loss. For the purposes of my topic, grain trading, the takeaway is that commodity markets in general, and grain markets in particular, are for one thing, volatile, and for another thing, not even reliably volatile in ways that can always be counted on to help your investing goals. I strongly urge you to approach each grain trade as an expression of some underlying idea about the supply and demand of grain, rather than as some theoretical tool for investing. The Players of the Game Springtime wind across the flatness of northern Iowa is like the ocean surf against a reef, roaring immensely powerful, and brutally, brutally constant. Crazy-making constant. Joe Smith chewed his gum and watched some scraps of last year's corn stalks get whipped across his farthest, newest farm. The Williams boy had washed out after five years of overextended equipment loans and poor crops. So Joe had offered the elder Mrs. Williams more rent per acre than either he or any of his neighbors had ever dreamed of paying for untiled ground 15 miles from any grain storage. To make the economics of expensive new equipment and ever-increasing seed prices make sense, it is every farmer's mission to expand to any extra ground he can find. Joe suspected the Williams boy had left the fields with deep ruts and compaction, although there wouldn't have been much he could have done to avoid that. The boy had been trying to make farming work as a side job to his regular gig with the phone company, but that meant disking and planting and fertilizing and spraying whenever he could fit it in on the weekends, which may not have always been the best dry days for the soil. Dry days were easy to find now. Joe couldn't remember a winter that had been so dry. His dad said it had felt like this in 1977, but Joe had only been 10 years old then and didn't remember that the county's corn production dropped to a third of its usual level and posted an average yield worse than any year since the 40s. In the years since the 1977 drought, Joe had gone from a kid to a farmer in a path familiar to many in the industry. His childhood had involved many hours of riding jump seat alongside his dad in various tractors and sprayers and combines. 
the best Christmas present he ever received was the professional tool set his parents gave him when he was 15. His post-secondary education in diesel mechanics was undertaken with only two goals in mind, to drink as much beer as humanly possible and to get back to the farm. Since then, Joe had smelled the fresh waking soil every spring and heard the migrating ducks cheer on every harvest. He couldn't figure out how all the shopkeepers and insurance salesmen in Des Moines could always tell he was a farmer, but having spent the majority of his adult life outside in the sun and the weather, Joe possessed that wind-blown complexion which couldn't be disguised by simply changing out of a seed cap and putting on a nice shirt. When the last two droughts had hit central Iowa in 1988 and 1993, Joe had just been starting out, working for his dad for an hourly wage rather than putting capital of his own into the venture. He certainly remembered the anxious tragedy that played out in his family's household those summers, but at the time he didn't fully grasp the financial implications. Now, if the current dry weather pattern didn't break, Joe would get a first-hand opportunity to see whether or not today's seed technology could be vigorous enough to withstand a real, honest-to-goodness drought, and how his crop's performance would affect his own family's checking account for the next several years. On the other hand, if the rain turned on right now, in April, and kept up pretty steadily through July, the corn would be fine. Well, not right now. Joe still had to get everything planted, and he was antsy to get started doing just that. As he stepped out of his truck, the savage wind snatched the door away from Joe's grasp. The temperature wasn't particularly cold, but for the past week, the wind chill had kept everyone bundled in jackets and caps. It didn't feel like it would be warm enough yet to give little corn seedlings a chance in the world. But wind chill can be so deceiving. Joe figured the soil might be warmer than you'd think, and he plunged the thick aluminum stake of his soil thermometer into the ground beneath his feet. It took a fair amount of wrangling to get it far enough down into the hard, dry soil. Then he scurried back into his truck, shook off the cold with one fierce shiver, and settled back to wait for the thermometer to get a reading. Joe thought to himself, Sure, the soil temperature reading may come back and say it's time to plant, but what good was warm soil for little corn seeds who would have no water to drink? It would take an incredible amount of faith in nature, perhaps even faith in God, for Joe to bury hundreds of thousands of dollars of seed, seed treatment, and fertilizer into the dirt with such seemingly poor odds for those dollars to grow into real plants, which would then just go on to face all the new weather challenges of spring and summer and fall. He shook his head and picked up his cell phone to call his banker. Rodney Brune was part banker, part farmer, part vintage car enthusiast, part soil scientist, Part student of the human psyche. Those last two qualifications were especially useful to the first one, because Brune's banking involved a lot of loan-making to humans who were mortgaging various plots of soil. He was a cheerful and intellectually curious old soul, and he loved nothing better than when one of his customers picked up the phone to call him, rather than forcing the transaction to take place the other way around. It took him two seconds after his secretary called, Joe Smith on line one for you, Rod, to have his newspaper folded away and have his mind entirely focused on everything he knew about Joe's operation. Brune picked up his telephone and rumbled, Hello there, son. How are things out west today? Oh, I'm actually up at that Williams farm I'm renting this year. Oh, very good. Getting ready to plant, I would guess. I got my weed in just last night. Dry as a bone south of town, anyway. Well, that's sort of why I'm calling. What's going to happen if this damn weather never changes and I don't pay you back this year? 
There are a variety of people who all hold some stake in the grain markets. There are, of course, the people who produce the grain, farmers, and the people or companies who consume the grain, end users, but also a full cast of traders, that's merchandisers, speculators, investors, and supportive industry professionals, that's bankers, seed salesmen, equipment dealers, and tertiary participants, that's investors in agricultural land or equity investors in agricultural companies. Of these participants, farmers are the ones with the most risk. The risks they take on each year aren't optional. They can either plant grain or not plant grain, and because they will always have to pay rent, a mortgage, or at least taxes on their land, the no-go decision is effectively impossible to select. Being an eternal optimist, a farmer will always plant the seed and hope that the weather delivers what he needs. The only time I've ever seen fields go unplanted was when too much spring rain made planting physically impossible, and that led to a heartbreaking summer of driving past a dismal, fallow fields. Ever since we've figured out how to do it, the entire history of the human race has been an example of farmers planting, 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 unless war or an act of God kept us from it. So, by definition, if a farmer must farm, he is placing his entire livelihood at the mercy of weather and grain prices each and every year. It's true that end users of grain also face great risk. What if they can't get their hands on the critical input for their business? But they have the benefit of diversified providers. If one farmer's crop fails one year, that's it for the farmer. But the flour mill that would have received his grain can probably go get similar grain from a different farmer, perhaps even from a different country. Everybody else in the industry, the grain traders, the bankers, the speculative investors, can choose what proportion of their total capital to place at risk in the volatile grain markets and trim or extend that proportion at any time. If the reader of this book has a goal to fully understand the grain markets and to develop some instincts for picking trading opportunities, it will behoove that reader to develop some empathy for the mission of the farmer and the end users of his grain. Farming is a term that could apply to a lot of things, including growing some tomatoes in your backyard and selling a few of them to your neighbor. In this book, however, I'm limiting the discussion of farming specifically to grain production. To some degree, any one type of grain is fairly substitutable for any other type of grain. Wheat can be fed to livestock instead of corn, which is the most common feedstock in the United States. Really, any edible substance can be run through a spectrophotometer at a lab to determine its protein, fiber, energy content, etc. You could get a standardized analysis for dandelion's nutrient content, and if it was economical to feed dandelions to livestock or to use them for any other commercial purpose, they could be, and would be, commoditized and commercially grown, stored, and traded, too. Livestock feeders actually do use sugar beet pulp, leftover cookies from the Oreo factory, and cottonseed meal, among other unlikely things, as parts of their feeding programs because those substances, like grain, are edible and contain energy. And if Oreo cookies are substitutable for corn, then obviously each type of grain is roughly substitutable for other types of grain. This interchangeability is why you hear about wood chips or grass species like miscanthus being used to produce cellulosic ethanol. There is energy contained in all organic substances, even in plants' inedible cellulose. Whatever part of the plant we process to glean the energy, we use that energy to live. We eat it. Or to carry out our lives here on Earth we turn it into power. Grain is the ultimate form of solar energy, transformed by a plant into a tangible, storable, tradable substance. When we talk about grain, 
we are usually referring to a dry, edible seed. Even though the actual definition, that is, the seed or fruit of a cereal grass, would limit the term grain to only corn, sorghum, also known as Milo, wheat, barley, rye, oats, rice, or one of the ancient cereals like triticale or amaranth. In this book, I'm going to talk about grain as any commodity seed used for its energy. This will therefore allow me to include soybeans, which are actually a legume, and canola and sunflowers, which by rights should be placed into their own little category labeled oil seeds. But since I'm talking broadly about trading agricultural commodities rather than about nutrition or agronomy, they're all going to fit the bill and be lumped in together with my grains. Corn, soybeans, and wheat are the three biggest crops grown in America by volume, so they'll be getting the most attention in this book about grain trading. The more general term, commodity, by the way, refers to a mass-produced, standardized, unspecialized product. If it is a commodity, there is a lot of it, and all of it looks and feels and smells and behaves just like all the rest of it. Any one sample of it would be interchangeable with any other sample of it. Plain white copier paper is a commodity. Every page is the same and can be interchanged with any other. But handcrafted artisan paper with little flowers in it isn't a commodity. Think of gasoline. When your car's fuel tank gets low, you know you can pull up to any gas station in the country and buy a standard product that will perform as you expect it to perform in your car's engine. True, there are variations in octane. If you were an energy trader, you could arbitrage 89-octane gasoline against 92-octane gasoline, for instance, but even these variations are standardized across all vendors. That standardization allows easy comparison. Which gas station is charging the least amount for the same comparable product? And therefore, it allows efficient trade. When you go to a farmer's market, the ears of sweet corn on various vendors' tables are not all interchangeable, and therefore they're not commoditized. Each vendor is selling a value-added product. He can tell you face-to-face -face what makes his corn better than the corn at the next table. Maybe a better variety, a different color or flavor, more care, better weather at his particular field. So that's not commodity corn, and it's not very efficient to trade. If it's not a commodity grain, it's not what this book is about. This book is about the corn, wheat, soybeans, and other grain that's grown commercially on a large scale all across the world each year, dried down, and brought to market as trillions of nearly identical kernels of grain. Just like commoditized gasoline can be separated into octane categories, grain samples can also be different or specialized in some way, like white corn for tortillas and chips, or high-protein wheat. But while a sample of food-grade white corn will be different than a sample of number two yellow field corn, each sample of food-grade white corn will be roughly interchangeable, according to standardized grading variations, with every other sample of food-grade white corn. And each bushel of number two yellow corn will be virtually indistinguishable from every other bushel of number two yellow corn. Entire market structures have evolved to facilitate the trading of these grains. The Liverpool Corn Exchange opened in 1806 and was the first of its kind in the Western world. It was established during the Industrial Revolution when a worldwide grain market developed to move grain from the fields of rural England and Poland toward the burgeoning urban population centers. The growing international grain brokerage community needed an official mechanism to organize cash grain trade keep track of prices, and maintain contract standards. And that's how the exchange, the institution of organized grain trade as we know it today, was born. 
Just about anybody can trade commodity grain through a futures exchange. Corn, soybeans, soft red winter wheat, hard red winter wheat, hard red spring wheat, oats, rice, barley, and canola are all grain markets that are large enough to support active futures trading in North America. If there's a futures market for a type of grain, it must have standardized contracts and the grain itself must be commoditized. But there are commoditized grains which don't have a futures market. Rye, sorghum, sunflowers, and others. I just want to clarify that they're still commodities because they can still be standardized. This will be important if you should ever start to trade one of those grain markets. Remember that the basic trading mechanisms should be mostly the same as trading corn or wheat. There are also other commodities whose own markets peripherally affect the grain markets. The price of crude oil can be related to the price of corn, for instance, because both commodities can be used to provide energy for transportation. The mechanics of trading physical crude oil are different than the mechanics of trading physical grain. Notice that I didn't say the mechanics of trading crude oil futures are materially different than trading grain futures, because they aren't. All the non-grain commodity markets are going to remain outside the scope of what this book is trying to illuminate. There are some other commodities which are indeed agriculture crops, but aren't grain. Cotton, sugar beets, or alfalfa hay, for instance. These are somewhat relevant to grain trading as discussed in this book. The first marketing decision made in any grain market occurs when a farmer chooses which crop to grow on his land. Because cotton, sugar beets, hay, rye, rice, poppies, pumpkins, corn, sorghums, soybean, sunflowers, wheat, peanuts, and miscanthus all compete for ground to grow on, it's important to think about them even if they all aren't strictly grains. I hope at the end of this book you'll feel confident to go make great grain trades. But I also suspect you will begin to feel a love for the agriculture industry itself. No other industry is so fundamentally tied to our human nature. It is creative in the truest sense of the word. By growing plants, we create and sustain life. And no other industry ties the global population together so inescapably. All life on earth depends on agriculture, and how well we distribute agriculture's products, how well we trade grain, determines how earth's population gains access to its most fundamental needs.